All right, would you stand as we read the Word of God? We're in Revelation chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as always, as we go through this book of Revelation, there's one thing. We, as elders, we may not agree on each of our positions upon eschatology, but here's the one thing that we do agree on. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And hear me say today that whether you agree or disagree, the king is returning. And I believe me, he's returning soon. If you get nothing else from this sermon, get what Jesus says here. He says, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Mark 13, 35 through 37. And it, it's a serious thing. If, if, if you or I are harboring or hiding any kind of sin in our life, we need to repent. We need to get right with the Lord. We need to fear him and give him glory. So that he can refresh us with our, his presence so that we can walk close to him. And enjoy him. This is a story of an apparent eviction notice. Uh, A lady was giving this story. She says, I'm not a landlord myself, but I know a couple who used their inheritance to buy a house in Southern California and rent it out. The tenant stopped paying rent around six months before COVID. And these landlords who had been trying to trying to be understanding and give the tenant time if she needed it were starting to consider evicting her. Then COVID and the eviction moratorium hit. This woman has not paid rent in over two years. 
the homeowners can't even get mortgage pauses or anything on their end because in order for the government to help out the, the landlords, there needs to be evidence that the tenant suffered from a COVID hardship. But the tenant can't fill out the paperwork because she didn't. And the tenant has had the same income this whole time. So she lived completely rent-free for no reason for over two years. Uh, And the landlords were hemorrhaging money and they were unable to get help from any kind of government assistance. And on top of all that, she's letting the pot farm next door use huge amounts of water and electricity on these homeowners' dime. Why do I bring this story up? Well, in a sense, that's what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. This is the greatest eviction in the history of planet Earth, written in advance. Those that have rejected, scoffed, ignored, rebelled against the Creator, Jesus Christ, and ruined his creation are not getting away with it anymore. They are squatting on the planet at the expense of the Creator. In chapters 6 through 19 are the judgment chapters of, of the book of Revelation. And what you're seeing here in the text is Jesus beginning to take over planet Earth. Now, according to my views, after the church has been raptured, God will unleash his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and several other, other passages, I believe, indicate the church will not go through this time of tri- tribulation because God's wrath has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Uh, if If you are in Christ, I believe that you and I will be in heaven watching from the mezzanine. Jesus took the punishment for our sin on Calvary to keep us from the wrath of God. And here in the book of Revelation, we see God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Now, this does not immune the church from persecution. Just ask our brothers and sisters in China, Pakistan, Iran, who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. We are not immune to persecution. And by the way things are going in America, we may not be far behind. But because of Jesus, we are protected from his wrath, thanks to his death and resurrection. And now we come to chapter 7. And there's this strange group of people called the 144,000. Who are they? What is their purpose? Why has God elected them? What are they doing in the middle of the tribulation? These are key questions that will unlock the book as we go further along. So by way of reminder, the Holy Spirit was kind enough to build an outline in the book of Revelation for us. Isn't it cool that the Lord encourages us to read this book, to study this book, for one, because there's a blessing in it. It's the only book in the Bible that says, read me, I'm special, and you will receive a blessing for reading it. Number two, the Holy Spirit outlined the book for us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus says, write the things that you have seen. John has seen the resurrected Christ. Write the things that are the things of the church. Uh, 
chapters 2 through 5, and things that are to take place after this, the word metatauta in the Greek. You'll see this word appear throughout and indicates kind of a sequence of events. So, yes, I take this book literally. Yes, it's imagery. Yes, it's vision. But there's a literal meaning behind the vision. And if I came to you and said, I just got my truck fixed and it cost me an arm and a leg. Now, did it literally cost me an arm and a leg? No, I'm using a figure of speech to indicate that it was expensive to fix my truck. By the way, if you buy a Dodge Ram, don't let your heater core break. It's really expensive. Um, Keep in mind, as we continue exploring this book, that the flavor now has switched. The first five chapters were written with the church in view. You have the seven letters to the seven churches. You see the church in heaven standing before the throne of God. It was written primarily to the church Gentile audience, if you will. And though there's some Jewishness in the seven letters penned by Jesus himself, its primary audience is to the church. In fact, I would even argue it's the most important part of the book for the church. I would argue, I'm sorry, once you get to chapter 6, the book also all of a sudden begins to take a dramatic turn. The book turns very Jewish in nature. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get into. The book of Revelation has over 600 references to the Old Testament. Revelation, which is why it's important to track those down and understand what Jesus is saying through John. Now with that background, let's get into chapter 7. Verse 1. After this, there it is again, the Greek word metatauta, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So John says, after this, well, you you have to ask yourself, after what? John's describing what is happening after the events of chapter 6, the previous chapter. What happened in chapter 6? Well, in chapter 5, Jesus takes control of the title deed to planet Earth. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, uh, I did a sermon on that, Revelation 5, and what that legal document is. If you care to understand more, the sermon is on our website. And Jesus takes the deed, which is rightfully and legally his, and begins to loose its seals. As Jesus breaks the seals, he releases four horsemen. We're familiar with them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. At least that's what they've been called. Kirk did an excellent job teaching on this, and I would recommend that you listen to it, which is also on our, on our website or any podcast app. But I take a different approach to the four horsemen. So do your own study and come to your own conclusion. It's fine. The first horse is a rider on a white horse with a bow and no arrows. He has a crown on his head. Stephanos in the Greek, which is a victor's crown, similar to a wreath in the, in the old Olympic games that they would place on a runner. I believe this is the Antichrist. He's being released after Jesus releases the seals to mount his last final rebellion. The bow there in the Greek, seems to indicate a political covenant that he's making with the earth. He will take over the world, not with military power, 
but through deceit and political intrigue. The second horseman is red and takes peace from the earth. And what follows the Antichrist? War. War breaks out globally and peace is removed. The third horseman, a black horse, is released and this rider holds a pair of scales in his hand. Scales in the Old Testament are used of economic weights and measurements. And these weights indicate scarcity of the essentials like food. It describes it as wheat and barley. But luxury items like oil and wine, as it says, will be plentiful. But the necessities will be scarce. Of course, the last horse released is death. A pale green horse. This rider brings physical and spiritual death. And we see very important people in the latter half of that chapter hiding themselves in caves and rocks, terrified of the wrath of the Lamb. Which Buzzy mentioned last week. Think about that. That's a paradox. The wrath of the Lamb. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So here we see these four angels assigned to the four corners of the earth to restrain judgment for a temporary placement of time. The earth doesn't really have four corners. The earth is not flat. The Bible says in Isaiah that God uh, has the circumference of the earth. Uh, this is a, again, this is a Jewish figure of speech, and you will see this in the Old Testament. It's a Jewish idiom describing wind, winds or corners or, or throughout the whole earth is the idea. Now, after Jesus releases the seals and judgment is poured out, there's a delay because something important is about to take place. And, he, and the Bible says that no wind or, might blow on the earth or sear it against any tree. And it seems that God's judgment is poured out on the earth. This can explain the black horse in chapter 6 with the idea of scarcity and famine. Incidentally, why is God doing this? What's his purpose in releasing this judgment? These horrible catastrophes? Is he being unjust? Well, let me suggest two things. Number one... It's to give him glory. If there's one thing that God, Yahweh, will not share with anyone, it is his glory. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not allow his glory to be stolen from idols. In fact, if there's one title that God holds very dear to himself in the scriptures, it's that of creator. And you'll see this all throughout the scriptures. He will not allow his creation to be hijacked in any way. In the Exodus account, God attacked the idols of the Egyptians by sending plagues in the form of those things that the Egyptians worshipped. You want frogs? Oh, I'll give you frogs. You like blood and violence? Oh, I'll give you a lot of blood. You like gnats? You think they're cool? You like to worship them? Oh, I'll give you a lot of gnats. If we as believers put anything before the Lord in our lives, out of his love, but also out of his glory, he'll attack those things. And many times, if you and I are playing with things we're not supposed to, 
He can give us an overabundance where it makes us sick. Yahweh is jealous for you. He's jealous for you. He will not compete with anything that you hold above him. He loves you too much for that. More importantly, he's jealous for his name as holy. Is there something in your life that the Lord has told you to let go of and you haven't yet? Maybe you're not experiencing the presence of God because he's waiting for you to let go of it. You say, well, God is jealous. Isn't jealousy kind of a petty emotion? Seems like petty people get jealous. Shows their insecurity and their emotional handicap. Why would I worship a God who gets jealous? I'll answer that question with a question. If my wife is unfaithful to me, is it petty for me to be jealous? No way. If Jesus paid such a high price to bring us to himself, is it petty of him to feel the way about us when we stray from him? Absolutely not. And praise be to him that he is jealous for us. Shows that he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And the second reason God pours these judgments out is to get men, people to repent. These judgments, believe it or not, in the book of Revelation are an act of God's mercy. Where's my daughter? Where'd she go? There she is. When she was little, we, uh, we, were, we bought a house with my mom and dad, and we lived in it for a while. And mom bought this industrial stove, and the stove was really hot because the pilot light, I don't know what it was. It was like this stove on steroids or something. And Sophia was probably two, and she'd go over, and she'd want to mess with it, play with it. And I said, don't touch it. You'll get burned. Don't touch it. Of course, what does she do? She wants to go over and touch it. So uh, I might get in trouble with social services, but whatever. I grabbed her and I swatted her little fanny. And of course, she fell into a pile and cried and wailed. But that little swat hurt way, way, way less than what that stove would have done to her. And I feel in many ways that that's what God does with us. Everything he does is out of love for us is out of love. So he's trying to bring men, people, to repentance. He's giving the Christ rejectors a taste of what eternity without him will be like so they'll come to their senses and repent. It's like the younger brother in the prodigal son. He was feeding pigs when he came to his senses and realized even his dad's servants had a better better life than he did. You see, even even during deserved judgment, God loves mankind, his, his imagers, so much. He continues to offer salvation. He continues. There's always a flower in the midst of a desert. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, it breaks his heart. He wants people to be saved, and he sent his son. He sent everything to bring them back. So, God being just and a respecter of man's free will... The book of Revelation, he's just going to simply give them what they want. C.S. Lewis said it this way. 
Hell is the ultimate monument to human freedom. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. Verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from the tribe of the sons of Israel. So we see this angel ascending from the rising of the sun with this seal in his hands. This is a picture here as if this angel maybe was on a scouting mission. Uh, and it's as if he's saying, you know, the earth is ripe and it's time to seal God's servants. So the attack from the four corners of the earth seems to be on the natural elements of the earth, the sea, the trees. Which is why, again, the black horseman, scarcity, starvation. So the question has arisen. Well, Brett, if the church is not here during the tribulation, who's going to preach the gospel to a world in turmoil? The answer lies, I believe, right here. After the sixth seal is open, there's a pause before the seventh is released, and we see this peculiar group of people called the 144,000. And no, they aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They're being sealed and protected throughout the great tribulation to carry the gospel message throughout the earth. In fact, in this chapter, we see two groups of people. Here we see Jews. The second half, you see saved Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly state that these are God's ambassadors, but why else would he protect them? Why else would he guard them in the midst of his judgment? They're not just there to stand around. They're there to bring the great commission to the earth. And after they're protected, we see in the latter half of the chapter that a huge number of people are standing before Jesus and one of the members of God's divine council informs John that all the people he's seeing standing before the throne of God were saved out of the great tribulation. The greatest, I believe, revival in human history will happen during this time. I believe millions and millions of people will come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of, this, of these 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. Think of all the YouTube videos, Instagram posts, Facebook content, Twitter feeds, and all the information out there about Jesus, about the gospel, and all the things that are out there. People won't be able to deny it. You can't hide all that. And it will be undeniable, I believe, that after the rapture, people are going to know. So what do we know about these 144,000 Jews? Well, for one, we know they're Jewish. I, I just simply think to allegorize what the text says doesn't give the text justice to what it says. It says they are Jews. And I know that there's uh, differing viewpoints on this that they would say this is actually the church i just they're divided by tribe the tribes are explicitly named they're explicitly jewish and when we get to chapter 14 you see more information about these hundred and forty-four thousand. the text clearly says they are the sons of israel they are divided by tribe they are the first fruits of the nation of israel 
The Bible explicitly states that Israel will be saved during this time. And Paul in Romans 9 through 11 says this. In fact, in verse Romans 11, 25 through 27, listen to what he says. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, mysterion in the Greek, lest you be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. That has happened to Israel. Blindness in part. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob's just another name for Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will sovereignly elect the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. Israel right now is an apostate nation. In fact, they're one of the most wicked. The largest LGBTQ plus parade is, 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 in, is in Tel Aviv. Israel right now is apostate, and they have been for years. In fact, most Jews today are, are agnostic or even atheists. But after almost 2,000 years of being scattered, after 70 AD, God has regathered them back to their land in unbelief when they became a nation in May 14, 1948. So one of the great purposes of the Great Tribulation is to bring the nation of Israel back to her Messiah. And God will save them. Well, we know that these are men and that they are virgins, according to Revelation 14, 4 through 5. Seems like Jesus. They're men and they are virgins and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Verse 3 says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there's going to be this sealing take place. It's going to be a seal of protection on the foreheads of these 144,000. Why the forehead? The idea comes from Exodus 28, 36 through 38, where God commanded a turban to be made for Aaron. And on the forehead area of the turban was a gold plate, which was engraved holy to the Lord. So Aaron is set apart for the Lord. So too are you and I who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been designated as a priest of God. Now, not a high priest, not in the sense of, but we are part of the priesthood of all believers, as Peter points out. He has set you apart for himself, marking you through the blood of Christ. It's a sign of ownership, this seal. This, so holiness is one aspect of being marked on the forehead. In Ezekiel 9, verses 3 through 5, there is a judgment that God unleashes. And he says, Now the glory of the God of Israel has gone up from the cherub, which it rested to the threshold of his house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had a writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to, to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him, strike, your eye shall not spare, and shall show no pity. And it goes on and say, spare the ones who have the mark on their forehead, the mark of God. 
So in Israel's rebellion, God protected those who groan over the blatant wickedness over his house. And we'll see in chapter 13, the Antichrist copycats God by putting his mark on his people on their foreheads. Satan is not original at all. By the way, where did David strike Goliath? What is conspicuously absent here is if God is protecting these 144,000 from judgment, why isn't he protecting the church? Because I believe the church isn't there. Now let me encourage you, if you are in Christ, you are marked by him. You are under his sovereign protection. Nothing can happen to you without his allowing it. And that should bring you great comfort. You are marked. The world may be falling apart around you, and you may not see a way out, but understand that in the middle of your tribulation, Jesus is Lord. And you may not see him, but he sees you, and you are under his constant care. It was of pioneers who were making their way across the, of the central states to a distant place that had been opening up for a homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day, they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie. And soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward this wagon train rapidly. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to that before the flames would be upon them. But one man seemed to have a solution. He gave the command for the fire, for a fire to be set behind them. And when that space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it. And as the flames roared toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror. Are you sure we'll not all be burned up? And the leader replied, my child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. Jesus took the fire for you on Calvary. So you will not get burned. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that you're, you and I are immune to death. But he, we are in the palm of his hand. We are in the palm of his hand. And one more thing about the forehead. Yahweh commands his people in Deuteronomy 6.8. To bind his word on their hands and frontlets between their eyes. That is the forehead. And God wants his word to be on our minds constantly. How often do you read your Bible? How often do you study your Bible? Do you spend time in it? You cannot know God without his holy word. And let me encourage you. Read his word. Don't get into his word. Let his word get into you. And of course, I won't read through the list, but you have the 12 tribes listed there from verses 5 through 8. Now, that's quite a list. Now, assuming, assuming you don't know the origin of these 12 tribes, let me, oh, excuse me, coffee. Assuming you don't know the origin of these 12 tribes, let me shed some light on that for you. In Genesis 12, God called Abram 
out of his native land to make a people for himself. And that great covenant that God made with him there in the first three verses, he says, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. He makes a covenant with Abraham and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was a messianic prophecy about Jesus. Abraham went on to have Isaac, who went on to have Jacob. Jacob was married to two women, Leah and Rachel. Some of those kids were born from Leah and Rachel. Some were born from their handmaidens. But there were 12 of them. What interest, what, what's interesting if you read this account in Genesis 30, this was a highly dysfunctional family. With a baby producing competition. I mean, it was really messed up. But you know what? Out of that dysfunction, those 12 boys became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that should give you hope. Knowing that God can take your dysfunction and your weakness and brokenness and make it into something. It doesn't matter how broken you are, how messed up, the Lord will use you if you allow him. He's, he's really good at taking nobodies, turning them into somebodies to reach anybody. And you see, it's not just your strengths and gifts the Lord is good at using, it's your weaknesses. Learn to embrace your weaknesses in the Lord, for that's where he will thrive in you. Now, in closing, there's a couple of things you'll notice in this list, and I won't go through it, all of it. But number one, the tribe of Judah is first in line. Perhaps because that's the tribe that Jesus came from. The second thing you'll notice is that the tribe of Dan is missing. Now, I'm going to tell you exactly why it's missing. I have no idea. I just don't. But we can speculate. And there are many speculations, but what's interesting to me is that according to Dr. Michael Heiser's work, he says that Dan forsook their inheritance in the southern region of Canaan and migrated north and set up shop, guess where? Mount Hermon, where they began to worship Baal. It could be the reason why they're missing in this list. But we don't know that for sure. That's just speculation. Now, this list may seem boring to us, but to a first century Jew, this was a big deal. Genealogies were a big deal because it, go, it showed God's faithfulness to the nation Israel, even when they committed spiritual adultery and forsook him. In Paul's affirmation that God is not done with Israel, he says in Romans eleven twenty eight and 29, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And this gives me great comfort because I know many times I forsake him, but it's not about my faithfulness to him. It's about his faithfulness to me, which spurs me to want to be faithful to him. So what do these 144,000 Jews teach us? It teaches us that God knows exactly who they are. And he knows exactly who you are. And he has set his eye on you. He has written their names in this book. He has written your name in the book of life. 
He has set you apart. And when he went to the cross on your behalf, so that you could stand in the people of God and be counted. Because of Jesus, you are in his genealogy. Warts and all, because of his shed blood on Calvary. So stand and be counted. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, so much for your grace, your mercy, and your love. Thank you for these 144,000 Jewish men that teach us a lot about who you are. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, cause us to give you praise and glory and worship you for you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.